So we are continuing in our series in Matthew, and we've done, I think, nine so far, and we're only beginning chapter five, so we might have to pick up the pace a little bit. Um, but in a way, I'm kind of excusing this. You can almost pretend like we're starting a second series now. The first nine of this series were um, essentially talking about the king and the kingdom coming. Oh, that's okay. You don't need those. It's really clear and straightforward, so you won't need the PowerPoint. Um, the, first, the first section, the first four chapters of Matthew, we've been talking about the king and the coming kingdom. So we've been talking about the person of Jesus Christ and the kingdom that he is inaugurating, that he is ushering into the world as he comes and this new kingdom. Now we get to sort of a second part in the series where we are talking about the teaching of the kingdom. And so the tone really changes here in Matthew chapter 5 as Jesus literally begins to teach. We've seen in weeks past that Jesus is a better Moses. He spent 40 days in the desert, just like Moses spent 40 days on the mountain. Now Jesus goes up onto a mountain and is about to deliver a better law. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, which are called the Pentateuch because there's five of them. Matthew structures his gospel to give us five delineated discourses or teaching sessions of Jesus. And the first one of those five discourses in the gospel of Matthew is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's being, it's the first one and therefore it's literally the primary teaching of Jesus. We see in the beginning of Matthew 5 verses 1 to 2, Uh, He says, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. And then from then on, for like two chapters, you get the first sermon recorded of Jesus Christ, and he is now teaching on the kingdom that he has been talking about so far in the Gospel of Matthew. And for centuries, Christians have and rightly so, put a tremendous emphasis on the Sermon on the Mount. It is the key to understanding what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. Jesus has been announced as the Messiah. He's a better Adam. He's a better Moses. He's a better Israel. He's a better King David. Matthew has alluded to all of those uh, in the first four chapters, and we've talked about all of them. And the proclamation has been made by Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying the kingdom has come. It is right here next to you. It is easy to access. It is so close So then, if all of that is true, what we move into in Matthew chapter 5 is what does it look like to be a citizen in this new kingdom? And that's what Jesus immediately begins to teach. The king is here, the kingdom is here, so what does it mean to be part of this kingdom? If I'm a part of this kingdom, what does it look like? And so from a new mountain, Jesus is going to show how the law is really meant to be fulfilled. And what we will see in the weeks to come as we spend some time in this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing that law after law after law, that our inner motive or character is how we are judged, not our outward ritual or some sort of showy action. You'll see that in the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about, you have heard it said, or it has been said, or it is said, but I tell you. And so he goes through the law and basically says, it's not about how you act, it's about what's going on in your heart. 
So Jesus lays this out in his very first sermon that following God is not really about how we behave. It's about who we are to be. If we can let God deal with who we are first, then our behavior will follow after that and take care of itself. There's a saying in architecture. I actually went through school for some years uh, for landscape architecture. And there is a saying in architecture or landscape architecture or in software programming or tool design, lots of different ways. There's this saying that says form follows function. So in other words, as architects or software designers or whoever, we observe what people are doing, how they function and what they want to do, and then we alter our forms to follow that function. So we see what they're doing and then we lay out the hallways and the rooms and the lighting and everything. The form of the building or the form of the tool follows the function. But what Jesus is going to say is that people and in people, function follows form. In other words, who you are Your form will determine how you function, what it is you do. And at various times, Jesus will reinforce this by saying things like, out of the overflow of his heart, a man speaks. In other words, it's the condition of the man which causes the nature of the speaking. Or he will say, good trees don't bear bad fruit, neither do bad trees bear good fruit. Right? He says the act follows the form or the function follows the form. Jesus says our problem is not mainly what we do. Our problem is mainly who we are because who we are determines what we do. I was talking to Isaac a bit about this over Christmas and I used the example that the problem with a horse thief is not so much that he steals a few horses. The problem with a horse thief is that he wants to steal horses and a horse thief is still a horse thief even if there are no horses to steal, right? Even if he puts these boundaries around his life and says, you know, I'm going to stay away from horses and make sure I don't get near a horse because I'll be tempted to steal it. In his nature, he's still a horse thief. There just doesn't happen to be a horse nearby for him to steal. And this is basically what what Jesus is getting at, is that it's who you are that's important more than what it is that you are doing. Because the same can be said not just about stealing horses. It can be said about an adulterous person or an angry person or a drunken person or a or an, an angry, uh, uh, a hurtful person, an abusive person, you, you might fool yourself into thinking that just because you've managed to constrain your behavior and put a leash on your worst impulses that you therefore are somehow you know, going to attain heaven because you've constrained your behavior enough, now therefore God's going to let you in for your behavior modification. But Jesus says, no, a Christian is, and Christianity and following Christ is not about behavior modification or fencing in our sin, Christianity or following Christ is about becoming a new person. It's about transferring citizenship. It's about moving from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It's about letting the old die and be reborn as a new creation and setting aside the old for the new. We don't need a law that simply works harder to constrain our sinful nature. We don't need a tougher law. We need a new heart and a new life that transforms us so that our behavior flows out of who we are. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. That's what Jesus is teaching about in the next two chapters. But before we get into all of that, Jesus is teaching on that. He opens up his sermon with what we commonly call the Beatitudes, which are simply a summary of what kingdom citizens look like. When you read the Beatitudes, it's a description of what it looks like to live under the favor of the king in his kingdom. So let's just read Matthew 5, 3 to 12, and I'll pray briefly before I do that. Father God, we pray 
that as we look into your word, even now, your Holy Spirit would open our mind and open our eyes and open our hearts to the things that you are teaching us. There's been lots of discussion. There's been lots of controversy even. There's been lots of debate over what exactly the Beatitudes are and what they're meant to be for us as Christians. But we will just read them at their plainest and understand that this is Jesus teaching his disciples what it means to be his disciples. Let that land on us very clearly this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So the scene here is that Jesus has come up this mountain and he sits down on kind of a level area and his disciples are with him. And so it's mainly the disciples that he has called, the twelve, And then in addition to the 12, other people are gathering in around. We realize later on there's actually a crowd of people. So in a way, this is a lot like church. If church was, you know, maybe not church this morning because we've got all the diehards here. But, you know, on on a summer morning when it's easy to get out to church and everybody's up at the cottage and everybody's here and out and about and... And we're here, kind of gathered, the family, the disciples are gathered, but then there's like a a crowd of other people that kind of just wander in and they're kind of listening. And they're listening to what is going on between this rabbi and his disciples and they are curious about what it is that he's teaching. And that curiosity will come out and people will react to the Sermon on the Mount differently uh, as we see it expressed later on in Matthew. But this is how Jesus starts here, talking to his disciples in 3 to 12. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now this introduction to the sermon, called the Beatitudes, which is just a word derived from the Latin for blessedness, You don't need to be a particularly keen biblical scholar to notice that this set of verses all begin with the same word, blessed. Did anybody pick up on that? Okay, you're with me. That's good, right? It doesn't take a keen eye to pick that out. But beyond that, there may be a few things that we do need to look into a little more closely to fully understand what Jesus is saying here. And let's start with something that's maybe not, uh, maybe the most obvious, There's not very much on this list that any of us would normally, in our own flesh, identify with blessing or what it means to be blessed. If you were to open up your Twitter or your Instagram or your Facebook and do a search on the hashtag blessed, you would not find the kinds of things that Jesus lists here in this list of Beatitudes. And I'll save you the trouble. I did it yesterday. And the first... (laughs) The first 10 or 15 things that come up in that were a new car, a picture of an attractive girlfriend in a bathroom mirror. It was family friendly, don't worry. A sunlit view of an Italian villa, a view off the bow of a yard, large yacht, a picture of a winning college football team, somebody hyped up that they had 2.8 million followers on their feed, a picture of a big house and a yard, and a couple pictures of family. That was nice to see. And a couple, a comment about getting a well-paying job. 
That was under the hashtag blessed, right? So just looking at that list, there's a pretty common theme, and we tend to think that being blessed involves immediate material gain or beneficial circumstances. But when Jesus talks about who is blessed, he doesn't mention cars, he doesn't mention yachts, he doesn't mention awesome vacations or winning the trophy, he doesn't even mention happy families or health or job security. And none of those things on their own are necessarily bad things. But they are not the things that Jesus lists when he talks about people who are blessed. They're not what Jesus thinks qualify as blessings in his kingdom. And the word blessing here in the Greek, it's makarios, and it's an interesting one. Our word blessed or even happy, sometimes it's often interpreted as happy is the one and happy is the person. That doesn't do it justice. It it really means something more accurately. You need a phrase for it to kind of explain it. It's the one who is commended or the one who is favored. And so as you're reading these verses, when you read the word blessed or blessed, you could read the one whom God favors is this type of person. And so let's look at who it is that God favors in his kingdom. What what do his favored citizens look like? Because I would think that we want to be favored citizens of God in his kingdom, don't we? And Jesus tells us this is what favored citizens look like. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the one whom God favors are poor in spirit. And he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I just want to point out one other quick observation before we get into unpacking these. There's a structural detail in the text here. The first and the last blessings are given in the present tense. And then there's six other blessings sandwiched or bracketed in the middle, which are given in the future tense. So it starts with theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then it says, they shall, they shall, they shall, they shall. Six times. And then it says, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it goes present tense and then future tense, 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 present tense. And so that structure and that verb tense gives us some insight into this new kingdom that Jesus is talking about and gives us some insight into the citizens who are blessed and favored as well. In other words, it's a present kingdom. Right? The one, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They have it. It's a present kingdom. We are or we can be citizens of this kingdom right now. But it's also not a fully realized kingdom. There's a future sense of the kingdom and its citizens and their blessings that are in the future. It's a now kingdom and a not yet kingdom. We are in the kingdom now, but there are elements of our citizenship that are not yet fully realized. This is not as good as it gets. This is not your best life now. Okay? There is a future coming that is far better. The kingdom itself is not fully emerged. And so we're going to look at this list of terms and the importance of the reality of the now kingdom and becoming citizens of it, and then what emerges over time as the kingdom becomes more fully realized both present and future, becomes more fully realized now on earth in our life and in the eschaton, in the future when the kingdom fully comes into being. So let's go back now. So blessed are the poor in spirit and theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I think it's very significant that the first statement of God's favor in the present tense, it's a sign to the poor in spirit. Jesus basically says here, if you are poor in spirit, not just behave poor, but you are poor in spirit, 
then yours is the kingdom of God. You are in the kingdom. This is what your citizenship papers look like. This is how you know you are a citizen. There are not citizens who are not poor in spirit, and if you are poor in spirit, you are a citizen. This is what characterized people who are have the kingdom now. There's a kind of poorness of spirit that you exhibit as a person and are accepted into the kingdom. And so what is poorness of spirit then if it is what it grants us the kingdom of God? It's very important because Jesus wants to emphasize at the very beginning of his new law how it is not like any other religious law that you could expect. Jesus says that the price of entering into his kingdom is empty-handedness. The cost of receiving riches is poverty. That's, that's how he starts his teaching. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 says this. Let's, let's just look, look with me here to Isaiah in 66 to see that this is exactly how it works with God. It's always worked with God. Not, it wasn't just Jesus coming along. He's just saying something his dad already had going for a long time. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be, declare the Lord. But this is the one whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So so here's what God is saying here in Isaiah, as clearly as he can. Long before Jesus showed up and had to say it all over again, for us to understand it again, God said this to Isaiah. He said, I sit in heaven... And heaven is my throne. And the earth is where I put my feet up to rest. And what exactly do you think you are going to build for me when you live on my footstool? Right? Where on this footstool of earth that I use are you going to build me a house? Everything you see I have. I made it. I created everything. In other words, you have nothing to offer me. You are not coming to me with anything in your hand that isn't already mine that I couldn't, that I can't possibly, you can't possibly have anything I need. And at that point, if we stop there, we realize that this is true about God, and we either get angry or depressed, right? We are angry that God basically says, you have nothing, I have it all, and our flesh rises up in anger that we are powerless against a God who has everything over us. He is God, we're not. And so our flesh can either get angry that we can't work our way or bribe our way out of our predicament, Or in our flesh we can despair and give up hope because we realize also that this is true and that we have nothing to offer God and so we despair that there is no answer to our predicament we are lost. That's how our flesh reacts if we stop there. But God isn't done speaking. He says, this is the one to whom I will look. And you can put in brackets there with favor. He's not looking angrily. He's looking with favor. This is the one to whom I will look in favor. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So God says, don't be angry, nor don't despair. I know you are empty-handed. I expect you to be empty-handed because I'm God and you're not. And, And you live on the earth, which is my footstool, where I rest. Right? So he's not expecting us to have anything. All you need to do is be sincere about your empty-handedness. Come humble, come poor in spirit, come trembling or being awestruck by my truth, and I will favor you. And I am glad that this is how it is. If it were any other way, then there would be no hope for me. If God said, I will look to the one who has a perfect prayer life, then I will be done for. 
If God said, I will look to the one who has big sections of their Bible memorized, count me out. Right? If, if God said, I will look to the one who is courageous in evangelism and is bold in every circumstance, I would not be in. If God said, I will look to the one who is full of great faith and confidence, I would be disqualified. But that's not what God said. God says, if God will look to someone who has nothing, who is empty-handed, who is poor in spirit, I have that. Nothing is what I have a whole lot of. Poverty, I am rich in. Right? And we all are, if we're honest, I have large supplies of nothing to offer God. And the amazing good news, what we call the gospel today, is that nothing is what God wants from us. We have nothing to offer Him. Just come to Him humbly and poor in spirit and contrite and tremble and be awestruck at Him and His Word. And He says, I will look upon you with favor. God takes the weak and the bankrupt and those who realize they cannot possibly lift up a sword in rebellion, nor can they offer anything to God. An empty hand is the easiest thing to offer God. Unless your anger fills it with a sword or your pride fills it with self-righteous works. God will not tolerate your sword, and he will not tolerate your self-righteous works. But if you come with an empty hand, he will accept you. So the first characteristic of a kingdom citizen, and I will go more quickly through the others, (laughs) but I wanted you to get this one, because it's the first one. And primacy has importance. The first characteristics of a kingdom citizen is the recognition of their poverty, and therefore Jesus calls them blessed. He says today, immediately, if you have this poverty of spirit, the kingdom is yours. Today, it's yours. No future tense, anything. It is yours. And then he says, in seven more blessings, that we would probably not pick for ourselves, but they continue to describe kingdom citizens. And they're said in future tense because as I read them, I think they describe a growing awareness of and a growing embracing of the kingdom identity and kingdom participation here on earth now with future rewards. I don't know for certain, I'll just tell you up front, I do not know for certain that Matthew intended them to be progressive or that they're linear or that they're intended in exactly this way. But as I read them at face value, they seem to me that if you have this poverty of spirit, the next seven blessings just kind of naturally follow. He says, those who mourn, and that refers to grieving over sin and the effect of sin. A Christian, a kingdom citizen knows that all grief and all sorrow and all pain and all discomfort and all calamity are a result of our own sin or being subject to the sinfulness of others, right? We learn that as Christians. Once we understand the truth of God, we realize that the problems in my life are caused by my sin, or they're caused by other people sinning against me or sinning against people I know, right? Everything we look at in the world is because of the curse of sin and our own flesh rising up. And so we mourn and we grieve, and when Christians mourn and grieve, we are always mourning and grieving over the root cause of calamity, which is sin. And when a Christian is mourning, we're mourning over the fallen nature of mankind and the curse upon creation. And the blessing that comes from mourning our sin and mourning the sin of others and grieving over it is that we know comfort is coming. And we can be comforted in the knowledge that all creation is waiting for our future redemption so that it can stop groaning and we can all stop groaning together, Paul says in Romans 8, 20 to 22. But you see that this is what naturally follows coming to God in humility. If you come to God poor in spirit, 
then what we will immediately recognize is that our sorrow and our mourning is because of sin, and we can mourn it, and we can repent it. Kingdom citizens, Jesus says here, are characterized by what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 7, a godly grief that produces repentance and salvation without regret. So Christian people, kingdom citizens, mourn their sin to repentance so that they can live in salvation without regret. If we mourn sin, we will be comforted. And then Jesus goes on, he says, blessed or favored by God are the meek. So this poverty of spirit in approaching God leads to mourning and grief over our sin and the effects of sin, which produces in us meekness, a humble relinquishing of power. You cannot kneel before God mourning your sin and not come out of that experience unhumbled, right? If you are walking around in God's kingdom with any sort of pride, then you have not been spending very much time with God reading his word. Because presence in the word of God and presence in the, with the spirit of God and presence even among the people of God should lead you to humility as you mourn the sin of your own life and the sin of others. God says, Jesus is saying here that God's people are identified as being meek. They are humble. They do not exercise power for temporary gain because they know they will inherit everything in the end anyway. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. There is no need for us to go around flexing ourselves up and pumping ourselves up and exercising power in this world. We can be meek. We can be powerless. We can be gentle. The meeker we are, the more we inherit in the end. And so there is a humility. There is a distrust of power as a means of gain for God's people. Rather, there is an embracing of gentleness or graciousness. And Jesus will go on to illustrate this point a little later on in the chapter by telling his disciples who are under the political and military power of Rome that if anyone slaps you, you should turn the other cheek. If someone forces you to go a mile, you should go another mile. You should go an extra mile after that mile. And so you see, Jesus is saying here quite directly, my kingdom citizens are meek. That means humble, but you know it also means not exercising power. It means not flexing on people and saying, I, you know, we as Christians have got to demand our way in the world. Jesus says, no, be meek. That's what my kingdom citizens are like. And then Jesus continues this description of a typical blessed citizen in his kingdom, and he says that they hunger and thirst for righteousness, and that that will satisfy them. And so these Christians who are poor, and who are humble, and who are meek, they also get their thirst quenched and their desires satisfied by righteousness. This is in contrast to people who are outside of the kingdom, who are still part of the world or of darkness. Those people, God says, several times, will not be satisfied. They are thirsty, but they are drinking at empty cisterns. Jeremiah 2:13 says, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That isn't going to satisfy. That's not going to satisfy them. You can thirst at the the wells of the world all you want and you will drink and you will think you're getting satisfied and you will find out at the end that there's nothing but sand in those wells, that they are broken cisterns. Or if we look at a New Testament example, Paul goes at it descriptively this way. He says in Philippians 3, he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. So he's not talking about kingdom people. He's talking about other people in the world. He says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. 
But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says these people outside of Christ's kingdom, their God is their belly. They are hungry people, and they eat and eat and eat and devour and devour and devour, and they try and fill it with earthly things, and it will not end in their satisfaction of their hunger, their craving, but it will rather end in their destruction. And then Paul hammers the citizenship thing again. He says our citizenship is in heaven. We're kingdom people now, and we await the future fulfillment of our kingdom when the kingdom arrives. And so Jesus is saying these same things that God said, that Paul's saying later on. He's saying... Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be satisfied. Kingdom people are identified and they are noticeable because righteous things satisfy them. They thirst after righteousness. They hunger after righteousness. They want to know more about God's truth. They want to, they want to know more about how to glorify God. They want to know more about worship and characters of God. And they hunger after it. They want more of it. And it satisfies them. People outside of the kingdom, they drink at empty cisterns and they're constantly thirsty. Their God is their belly. They try to satisfy their cravings and they end up just devouring each other and ultimately not being satisfied but destroyed. There's this big difference that Jesus is painting between kingdom people and non-kingdom people. And then Jesus says, these same blessed people are merciful. As you are poor in spirit, as you mourn your sin, as you become humble and meek and cling not to power but to gentleness and are far less arrogant and abusive and you look to righteousness to be satisfied, all of a sudden, mercy becomes part of your life. Mercy just starts to flow out of kingdom people. And mercy is compassion for people in their circumstance. It's compassion for people who are as overtaken by sin as you once were and as you still are at times. That's what mercy is. Mercy is looking at somebody and saying, I was there. I mean, I've been as overwhelmed by this world. I have been as consumed by my sin. I have been overcome by selfishness or pride or greed. Whatever it is that is causing you to do what you're doing, mercy is the compassion to look on that person and say, I've been there, or by the grace of God, I would be there if it wasn't for God. And instead of being angry at them and instead of berating them and instead of, you know, hitting them over the head with a Bible maybe, you just are filled with mercy and compassion because it comes out of that poverty of spirit and humility and learning the righteousness of God and learning that we need mercy ourselves. We're in no better position than these other people. We can't receive so much mercy on our own and not offer it. If you're walking around as an unmerciful person, then you have very little understanding of the mercy you have received. And and as you study the mercy that you have received from God, you can't help but then respond in mercy to others who need it just as much. And recognize others need the mercy that we have received. And then along with becoming a merciful people comes pureness in heart. There's a, a cleansing that starts taking place and has been taking place all this time as a citizen of God, right? As at first you inherited the kingdom by being poor in spirit and as you were grieved and you mourned over your sin and the sin of the world and as, and as you thirsted and hungered after righteousness and as you became meek and as you And as you had this um, sense of mercy growing, there's this cleansing going on in God's people. We come empty-handed to God and He receives us and all of these things start to happen in their life. And then we start to realize that there's a purity, there's a cleanliness to this new life. Our old selfish craving hearts are getting purified and we are going to receive a righteousness not of our own making but of Christ that will allow us to see God. 
And so we just realize that as citizens, they're characterized by this cleansing that takes place. And all the dirtiness and all the filthiness starts to get washed away. And you just feel like you are around a cleaner people. And you yourself just feel cleaner in your spirit. Because God's been washing you through humility and through mourning and through righteousness and through mercy. And so there's just this purity that comes in the people of God. Not that we're ever perfectly pure. Not that we ever reach perfection. But you know what I'm talking about. Everything just seems cleaner. I mean, we could be really literal, like our language is cleaner, and our habits are cleaner, and our thoughts are cleaner. We can be literal that way. But we're also just spiritually cleaner. We have cleaner motives and cleaner wishes for people. We desire better things for others. There's just a cleanliness and a purification that takes place. And then Jesus goes on. He says, we will also be peacemakers. And that's where we most identify with Jesus himself, called sons of God. Obviously, all these characteristics of the kingdom are characteristic of Christ, but we will be called sons of God when we are peacemakers because that's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to make peace between man and God. Jesus came to make peace and reconcile. God is a reconciler and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.18. And so, now just as this is a list of blessings, is starting to actually sound like what we would think of as blessing a little bit. Right, like poor in spirit, mourn, no, meek, no, those don't sound like blessings. Okay, like hunger and thirst after righteousness, that's starting to sound like a blessing. You know, peacemaker, I get it, that, that sounds like a blessing. I'd like to be a peacemaker. So this, you know, the list is just starting to get good. It's starting to sound like blessings. And just as it gets there, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's like he blew it again right at the end there. <laughs> right? It was just, it was just, you had me there for a minute, Paul. Like you, Jesus, you were, you're getting me to the blessing. And then you say, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And he goes back to the present tense. So he says, this is a present reality of kingdom people. As you are seeing the kingdom emerge, right? The kingdom is now, you are in it. And there is this, there will be, you are growing in the kingdom and there's sanctification taking place and purification taking place. And there's all these things you're going to inherit. Then Jesus comes back and hits us with the cold reality of right now. Again, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of God. And he's back in the present tense again. He's saying these, these are true kingdom citizens and they're easy to spot because they're persecuted for their righteousness, because of all the stuff that I just listed. It's easy to pick them out of the world. And once the world picks you out of the crowd, then the world will pick on you. Kingdom citizens are different, and so they will now act different, and they will be persecuted for acting different. And the world will speak evil about you, and they will revile you. And Jesus says you should rejoice in that, because you are part of the kingdom now, and you will get a great reward. This is the now, but also future kingdom, and you are a part of it, and you know you're a part of it because you're starting to act differently. You're meek, and you're humble, and you are a peacemaker, and you hunger and thirst after righteousness, and the world sees that. They see that you're not part of their kingdom, and they say, there's a foreigner here, and they start to pick on you and revile you and persecute you because you're different, and they don't like what you are. But Jesus says, that's a blessing. Because the future reward is going to be great. Yours is the kingdom of God. This just confirms that it is the kingdom of God that you have. 
And so I don't know for absolute certain, like I say, if Jesus or Matthew intended this list to be sequential necessarily or even feel sequential. I'm not saying these things go in a particular order. These are just things that Jesus says that if you are a citizen of my kingdom, these are the ways in which you're going to begin to change. You're going to start to exhibit these characteristics, right? And and a Christian may not always, they may not always unfold exactly the same way in the same person, but there is a certain sense to me that the present and future tense of this list is meant to convey this idea of a progressive sanctification, that there is a point of entry into the kingdom now that God has already made clear, and that point of entry is empty-handed poverty of spirit. And that empty-handed asking of God's favor then sets in motion a transformation that's taking place starting now and it's moving forward into the final consummation of the future kingdom. A process of mourning our sin, of replacing pride with humility, of, of replacing power with gentleness, of setting our appetite on righteous things, of drinking and eating the things of God rather than thirsting and starving as we try to drink at dry cisterns and fill our bellies in the world. There's an emergence of mercy and compassion towards others who are just as sinful as we are and who need the relationship that we have, which results then in a cleansing of our hearts and a calling into the ministry of a life of being peacemakers and reconcilers of man to God and to each other. And from all of that, we embrace the reviling and the persecution and the false accusations that we can expect from this world because when we walk around as this new kind of person, they will be suspicious of us and they will even hate us at times. But that's okay. It just confirms that we stand with God and his people and that the kingdom really is breaking into this world and that the kingdom really is emerging and being consummated in our lives and we'll be rewarded when that kingdom finally comes. So this is how Jesus sets up his Sermon on the Mount. He basically draws the boundaries or the borders of his kingdom. He says, this is where the borders are, right? This is what it means to be part of the kingdom that I have brought with me. This kingdom that's breaking into the world and is gathering up followers as I go. He's going to expound and describe the behavior of these kingdom citizens in a little bit and how they're meant to interpret the law of the kingdom in the sermon that continues, and we're going to do that with him. But first, and right now, the question before us and that Jesus lays out is, are we kingdom people? Jesus has basically said, this is what the passport is supposed to look like. He opens up your passport. And he looks at the picture and at the stamps and at the writing. And he's wondering, we're wondering, is it poorness of spirit? Is it meekness? Is it gentleness? Is it hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Right? Those are the boundaries that that God has drawn to say, this is what my kingdom people look like. And you can't put on a fake accent or wear a disguise or walk a certain way, or dress a certain way to get into the kingdom. okay? Because it's not about what is on the outside. You're not going to get into the kingdom that way. You get into the kingdom by this poverty of spirit that allows Jesus to transform you into a new kind of citizen. And Jesus has been preaching this one message so far. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is right here close by. You can step into it without even moving out of your seat. And so as we pray here at the end here, you can approach God empty-handed, no sort of rebellion or anger, no good deeds or 
offerings or a big check or whatever it is you think that you're going to use to get into the kingdom. You come to God empty-handed, confessing and grieving and mourning your sin and humbling yourself before him, and he will make you a citizen right now. The kingdom of heaven is yours if you have that poorness of spirit. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the clarity of Christ's teaching. And there's so much more here, God. You know (laughs) how much more there is here. We could do an eight-week sermon on all eight sentences if we needed to. But, But Father, I just pray that we would see the big picture of what Jesus is saying through Matthew. That this kingdom is here now. It's a now and future kingdom. And that we can be citizens of it right now and start receiving the blessing of it now. Even though it's not perfectly consummated yet. Even though it's not perfectly arrived. The blessings begin now. And Father, all those blessings come and flow from a poverty of spirit. Father, I pray that all of us right now would just come to you again. Because we need to do this every day as Christians anyway. We need to kneel before you as Father and understand that you have it all. We have nothing. And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. That you desire that we don't bring anything to you. But that we just come to you poor and humble so that our dad can care for us. Father, if there's anyone here who has not understood faith in that way, if they think religion is something that, you know, Jesus has given us a whole bunch of rules here in this sermon that we have to follow, and if we follow him good enough, then we'll get in. Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would turn that idea right upside down. That is not the message of the gospel. The gospel is that a broken reed you will not despise and a smoldering wick you will not put out. So, Father, take our brokenness and our smoldering lives and, Father, redeem them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.